as we come now before God's word, if you'd like to read with me, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2. That's Philippians 2. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Lord, would you water the hearts of those who hear your word so that seeds sown in weakness would be raised in power? Transform us now by your holy word. Help us to see and to understand and to believe. Now by your spirit, would you guide us in Jesus' name? Amen. This is Philippians in chapter 2. I'll start in verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. That's Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's word. Now, here in this section, we get a little bit of insight into the circumstances around the letter from Paul to the Philippians. We know that Paul is likely sending a message from Rome. He's in house arrest there. And so this message now comes with a certain amount of, of travel to get the message to them. And we recognize that their world here is a little bit different than ours. If we want to send a message, all it takes is click. Yeah, and the message goes. Isn't that amazing? Just one little twitch of a finger and you can send a message. Or, or you can even chat in person with someone on the opposite side of planet Earth live. And there are, you can virtually have instant access to anyone at any time. And so it feels a little bit different to us that a message would go like this, but their world is not entirely different than ours. Even in my own lifetime, uh, this was before the days in high school when everyone had a cell phone. And so if you wanted to meet up with someone on a Friday night, you kind of just had to drive around the Dairy Queen 
until you bumped into somebody. And nowadays, you text them and say, hey, where you at? Uh, but even in my day, not that long ago, it was different. And, and I'm sure not long before that, some of you, I'm sure, remember even days uh, similar to this. That if you wanted to communicate with someone or send them a message, you sent mail. And that mail could take days or sometimes weeks or months, depending on where you're sending it. And that's the situation here for the Philippians, that there's a message being sent back and forth. And you know that feeling when you open your mailbox, you pull everything out, and you kind of rifle through it, and there's lots of bills, of course, and lots of junk mail, but you see a name you recognize. You got a letter or a card from someone you know. It feels different. You think, uh, someone thought of me. Someone wants to hear from me. Someone loves me or cares about me. That's nice. It's a good feeling. That's what's happening here. We're seeing a little bit of a, a window in the midst of the comments about the news, the business of the travels back and forth, a window really into the love between Paul and the Philippians, a love that's bonded together in their unity in Christ because they are one in Christ. So we need to look a little bit at the messengers here. There's uh, two messengers specifically that are mentioned, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So let's look at each one of those before we can move on. Timothy is the first, first messenger mentioned. He's the more familiar of the two of those. Um, Timothy even has some of his own letters in the New Testament written to him, First and Second Timothy. And since Paul now is in house arrest, he's not able to travel on his own, uh, he says he plans to send Timothy to the Philippians. This isn't happening at the moment. He says, I want to do it, what's the line? Soon. I want to send this in the future, and, and I even want Timothy to come back with news from you. He says, I, I want to hear how you're doing. I want to be cheered by this. I want my spirits to be lifted by hearing about you. And the reason he says he sends, he's going to send Timothy and not somebody else is in verse 20. He says, I don't have anyone else like him who's genuinely concerned for your welfare. In other words, Timothy is, Timothy's worried about you. Not anxious. Later he says, don't be anxious, but present your request to God in prayer. That's, it's not anxiety. It's more like when mom wants a college student to call every once in a while, just to know that they're alive and that they're doing okay and that they're eating something more than just ramen noodles. That's the feeling. Timothy's concerned about your welfare, he says. And Timothy was likely there when the church at Philippi was founded 10 years before. We see that in Acts chapter 16, that Timothy joins Paul in his travels, and one of the first places they go after he joins them is the city of Philippi. So Timothy has known the church, this church, since it was a baby. So Timothy could say, I changed your spiritual diapers. Maybe not a great image to use. Or, or I, I knew you since your faith was knee-high to a grasshopper. And so in the course of time, Timothy watched this church at Philippi grow. And on the flip side, they watched 
him. They saw his life. He says, you, uh, where is it? Verse 22, you know Timothy's proven worth. In other words, when he was with you, you saw him. You saw how he lived out Christ-likeness among you. And so as a result, you've come to trust him as a servant of Jesus. And so Paul says, I want to send Timothy to you soon. Now that's happening in the future in a little bit. We don't know when. That's his hope there. I hope to send Timothy. Now, he says, I'm going to send to you a guy named Epaphroditus. And that name is a little less familiar to us. It's hard to say. Epaphroditus. It sounds like something you get if you stay out in the cold too long. But uh, we don't know much about this guy at all. Um, The only thing we know of him is what's mentioned here in the book of Philippians. Probably he was not Jewish by birth or heritage. He was some sort of Gentile convert. We think that because his name is very Greek. If you know the love goddess Aphrodite, that's where he got his name. Epaphroditus is a version of that. He was probably named after her. Uh, Probably Epaphroditus was from Philippi. Probably uh, Epaphroditus was the one that carried uh, the letter from Paul to the Philippians. So he didn't just send it put it in the mailbox, and someone that he didn't know sent it on. He says, will you take this to the Philippians? And Epaphroditus says, all right, here I go. Now, what we do know for sure about Epaphroditus is that he was the one who was sent to Paul with the message from the Philippians in the first place. Paul mentions this in chapter 4. Where is it? Verse 18. Paul said, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In other words, the Philippians had sent Paul in his travels a care package. Here's some money. Here's some food. Here's some Twizzlers, if it were me, or Chex Mix, whatever your, your, your item of choice is. Uh, here's all your needs. And all of that was brought on behalf of the Philippian church uh, by Epaphroditus to Paul. And somewhere along the way, either in his travels or my guesses after he'd arrived with Paul somewhere in Rome, Epaphroditus got sick. We don't know what kind of sickness. Paul doesn't say. We just know that it was bad. He says in verse 27, indeed, he was ill near to death. Whatever it was that he got, it nearly killed him. Something as a result of his travels. And we know that sometimes in the Lord's providence and mysterious love, sometimes Christians do die in service to the Lord. That's a reality. But, in this case, God had mercy. Um, That mercy was on Epaphroditus, Paul says. The sickness was healed. And and Paul says, that mercy was even on me, because he didn't die, and so I don't have to experience sorrow upon sorrow. I don't have to be sad at the loss of my friend. 
And so now at this point, some time has passed since Epaphroditus first arrived with Paul, and Epaphroditus has now gotten well, but he's homesick. Verse uh, 26, he's been longing for you all. Paul says later, the Philippians were distressed when they found out that Epaphroditus had gotten so sick and they, they miss each other. Epaphroditus just really wants to go home. And so Paul does send him home. He sends him on his way and, and writes this letter and says, will you carry this letter back to the Philippians? And that's now what we're reading out of in the Holy Scripture. And Paul says at the end of it, when Epaphroditus arrives to you, Philippian church, I want you to honor him. Because when he came and he got sick and now he got homesick and wants to go home, he has not failed. He has done what you sent him to do. Uh, he has served me in doing things that you weren't able to do. So be glad when you receive him. So the summary of this section of the letter in whole, uh, as a whole is, is Paul says, I want to send Timothy to you soon. And sometime after that, I want to come to you as well if I can. And now I'm sending Epaphroditus this letter to you. That's the summary. So I look at this text. You know, we're reading through Philippians, and I, and I go, <laughs> all right. So this sounds a little bit like the, the business end of the letter. It's the details about travel plans. So what good is this to me now to look at this? What help is this to a Christian in the 21st century? And I'm wrestling with this text going, what am I supposed to do with this other than just that there's some travel back and forth? And as I look more at this section, I noticed that there's something that seems out of place here, at least for what's typical of Paul's letters and letters of that time. This is not fancy seminary learning. You can figure these things out by just continuing to read the Bible, sifting through what's typical for letters in the New Testament. We, we often see names mentioned, some travel plans. It's typical to see that in a letter, but uh, we could see that, uh, let's see, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy shows it. Um, but usually when we see those names and travel plans, they come at the end of the letter. We still kind of do that nowadays. You know, you're having a, even in conversation, you're chatting with someone, and then at the end of the conversation, you go, oh, when will I see you again? Or, oh, I'll see you tomorrow. We have that sort of connector there at the end that normally happens at the end of the letters, but for, uh, but for some reason here, this is right in the middle of the letter. It even interrupts the flow of what he seems to be talking about. If you'll notice the section right before it, in chapter 2, verse 17, he's, he's saying this, Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. And then he launches into the travel section, but it ends. The next verse is, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It seems that he's carrying on an idea that kind of got interrupted. And so this interruption about these travel plans in the middle has caused some to say that the letter to the Philippians is in pieces. 
that it's kind of a cut and paste version that we sort of lost what Paul originally wrote and this has now been kind of slapped back together and that's why things seem out of place. And I disagree. I don't think there's any good reason to think that Paul didn't write this as a whole. But if this is the way that Paul wrote this, that brings a question for us that's very important. Why did Paul write this part here and not at the end? That's generally a good question as we're reading through the scripture on our own. We ask ourselves, why did the writer put, not only say this, but why did they say this here? Why did they put this now? Or what led Paul to think this now as he's writing? Have you ever had the experience, I'm sure you have, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about here, where you're working on one thing or talking about one thing and suddenly something pops into your head? So you're suddenly reminded of something else in the middle of a conversation with somebody and you go, ah, I need to get milk. Something, sometimes you can't even quite put a finger on what it was, but something about that conversation made me go, ah, milk or or onions, or whatever the thing you're missing. See, it reminds you of something else as you're going, that, that in the middle of it, I go, ah, that reminds me. Uh, I, I need something else. I think the same thing is happening here. You know, up to this point, Paul has written a whole lot. He's, he's poured out a lot of ink, encouraging the Philippians to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus. That as ones who are saved by Jesus, they're called to live under his lordship according to his kingdom. And so we've heard over these past several weeks that we, as a result of that, we want to be people of belief and faith. We want to be people who are willing to suffer. We want to be people who, who are united in Jesus. We want to be people who are humble. We want to be people who are joyfully obedient and as Paul's writing that, he goes, you know, that reminds me. I'm going to send you Timothy and Epaphroditus. They're coming soon. In other words, Paul's saying, when I think about our holy calling as Christians, these guys come to mind. These guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, are, are models. They're living embodiments of faithfulness. They're godly examples of life in Jesus. And it would do us well to listen to them. Now, some push back on this and they go, wait a minute, Nathan. Are you telling me I'm supposed to follow the examples of people? Because I only followed the example of Jesus. Uh, in fact, in the beginning of, of the letter, uh, First Corinthians chapter 1, I forget what verse it is, uh, but Paul's talking about some division that's happening in the church, and he says, some people say, I follow Paul, some say, I follow Apollos, some say, I follow Cephas or Peter, and some say, I follow Jesus. And boy, I bet those people who said, I follow Jesus, were, you know, pretty proud of themselves. Oh, you guys follow Paul, but, you know, I follow Jesus. And that might sound really holy to say it that way. Oh, I only follow Christ. 
That's actually not what Paul says here. In some sense, of course, it's true that we only follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean we ignore the examples of other believers. And if you go, oh, is that really what Paul means to say here when he's talking about this travel section? You know, maybe there's some tension, but he's much clearer about this in just a few verses. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says it much clearly like this. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. If I were the one writing this, I'd be too nervous to write that. Don't, don't follow my example. I'd be too afraid. I, you know, I'd, I'd want to say, brothers, join in imitating Christ, is what I'd want to say. But that's not what he says. He says, I want you to imitate me. Follow the example that you have in us, Paul, Timothy, and probably Epaphroditus, too. He's, uh, he says the same thing again multiple times in Scripture. Here's just one. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here he's speaking, Paul is speaking to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he says this. For to this end we toil and strive, because we've set our hope on the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, as you're pointing people to Jesus, I want you to set the tone for that. I want you to set the living example of that. And if that sounds to some people showy or selfish or look at me, sometimes it is that way, but it's not necessarily that way. It's, it's a way of ultimately pointing to Jesus. These examples are not above Christ. They don't exalt themselves over Jesus, nor are they between everyone else and Christ. So Paul's not saying, to get to Jesus, you have to go through me. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that in these godly examples, you are seeing the spirit of Christ living in them. That's what happens to a believer when we're united to Jesus, that he lives in us and lives himself out in us. We saw tons of examples of this at General Assembly. Susan mentioned a few, the, the the woman who survived the Rwandan genocide was just stunning. I thought that story is just heartbreaking. She lost all of her families and, and friends, murdered. And she talked about a wrestle to forgive, but over the course of time, how the Lord was working forgiveness in her, and I thought, I just want to sit at her feet for a bit and learn the forgiveness of Christ from her example. We heard from a man who, a pastor, four kids, six in his family, who quit his job, moved from a city, and moved them into a tiny little apartment so that he could work with the poor and needy of certain races. 
trying to mend some racial tension. And I thought, I want to learn to follow the cost of reconciliation in Jesus by following his example. And when they, when they brought up the missionaries so they could be commissioned to, to be sent out to the country they're going to, they, they list the names and then they all come up on the stage and we pray for them together. They list the first two names. And this couple stood up both of them, snow white hair, the man had a cane. They could barely get up the steps to the stage. And I thought, they're probably going to present some sort of award. <laughs> no, they'd been missionaries on the field for 40 years, retired, came back to the States. And when they heard that there, were, there was a need for people to preach the gospel to the Malay people, they said, we'll go. I want to learn about the sacrifice and love of Jesus from their example. These people are living, walking, breathing reminders of who Christ is. Now, the challenging question for me and then for us is, who are you reminding people of? When they look at your life, are they reminded of Jesus? What sort of example are you encouraging others to follow? Because this call is not just for a special category of people. It's not just for the saints in sort of some sort of special space. It's for all of those who are saved by Jesus. And I guarantee you, there are many believers and none who are watching how you live. So when a person thinks of the fruit of the Spirit, they may not call it that, but when they think of things like love and joy of peace, do they think of you? When they think of mercy and justice, do they think of you? You are not too old to be an example of Jesus to others. And on the flip side, some of us, you are not too young to be an example of Jesus to others. In your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. And if at this point you think, well, <laughs> Yikes, Nathan, I, I don't even know that I know how to do that. Then it might be a good place to begin to go, who are the examples that I want to look to? Who are people that when I look at their lives, it makes me want to follow after them? Or pursue them. Follow their example as they follow Christ. Christ. 
find an example to follow. Now, we have to be very, very careful at this point, and I realize I'm pushing time, so I'll kind of tilt us toward the end, but there's something that must be said in addition to this. Please, please think about these things. I've been challenged by this as well, but we have to be careful. When I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors uh, warned us of what he called the deadly bees, which, well, yeah, I won't say what that sounds like. Sound like watch out for the deadly bees, he would say. And sometimes even in the middle sermon, deadly bees, he'd say. By this, he meant when we read the Bible, sometimes we think, I'm supposed to be like someone. I read the story of David. I'm supposed to be like David. I'm supposed to be like Mary. I'm supposed to be like Moses. I'm supposed to be like Esther. I'm supposed to be like John. And that's usually how we read Bible stories to kids. Here's what Noah did. Well, I don't know. Go gather up your cat. You know, be like Noah somehow. Be faithful like Noah. And there's something to that, I suppose. But the scripture, the word of God, is not just a bunch of moral examples. We recognize the value and worth of those who are walking in holiness by grace through faith in Jesus. They, they are ones who walk before us, amongst us, with us, to encourage us, to challenge us. And yet, we also very much recognize the limits of these people. If we look long enough and close enough at their lives, if you stay at their house for a week, you probably see holes in their holiness. You'd see their sin come to the surface. You'd see areas of weakness. For Epaphroditus, it's just, you know, he just got really sick. <laughs> and he got really homesick. And, and Timothy, he's called Paul's son, or he was probably a young convert of Paul, so he just had a lot to learn about boldness, about love, about faithfulness. And Paul, of course, we know there's lots we could say about Paul. That he, before he was a Christian, he was a murderer of Christians. But my favorite part of this text, if I can have a favorite section, is Paul's weakness. He says he wants to send Timothy soon. Did you notice that? I wanna, I'm going to send Epaphroditus now, and I, I want to send Timothy to you, but soon. And I, I wonder, why not now? <laughs> How come soon, but not, why not at this moment? And he, and he gives us the reason. Where is it? Verse 23, I hope to send him to you just as soon as I see how it will go with me. In other words, Paul says here, I'm, on, uh, I'm in prison, and I'm awaiting my trial, and I just don't think I could handle being by myself. It's too lonely. I don't know how to deal with it. So I'm going to keep Timothy with me until I see how it will go with me. I love that. You get a little glimpse into the weakness of Paul, not just before he became a Christian, but as he is a Christian, a writer of a big chunk of the New Testament. We see his frailty. These examples of these men, and of course women also in many cases are examples, with the examples are good, but they are not quite enough for us on their own. 
even if we had a perfect example, which we do in Jesus, that would still not be enough for us. Because if it's all just about examples to follow, it will only help us to recognize how poorly we follow those examples, <laughs> how incapable we are at actually doing this. And so it leads some of us to say, I, I give up. I can't handle this. I can't do this. I might as well throw in the towel in faithfulness. And Paul says, Paul would encourage us otherwise. He would say, we want to cry out instead, Jesus, make me able to follow you when I face sickness. Jesus, make me able to follow you when I face homesickness. Jesus, make me able to follow you when I face sadness. Jesus, make me able to follow you when I just feel alone. Strengthen me to follow you. Make me alive to follow you. Make me willing to follow you. It's not just, Lord, show me the way. It's, Lord, transform me to follow the way. Lead me in your grace and power. And he does. It's complex, of course, how that lives out, but he does this. And we know he leads people by his grace and power because we're looking at it in the lives of these guys and in the lives of all true Christians. We see in them just a regular, ragtag bunch of flawed and weak people who are turned into godly examples for our sake. They're not just moral examples for our lives, but they are ones who are trusting in Jesus for their lives. Don't we also then want to be changed by Jesus to be living examples of his mercy? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness to us and the, the saints that have gone before us and the saints that walk with us. We know that these and we are pictures of your grace and power. Help us to be encouraged and challenged by this. We trust always in your mercy to us. And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.